Congress is turning its attention to the 2022 budget negotiations, but the talks about funding the Veterans Affairs Department sound a lot like those of years past. VA is on track for another record budget next year if the Biden administration gets its way. Democrats say the extra resources will help fund VA programs that have been unattended in recent years. But Republicans wonder whether it's simply too much. We get more now from Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. The Biden administration is proposing a 10 percent budget increase for VA in 2022. That's $270 billion next year on top of emergency funding from the CARES Act and American Rescue Plan. Democrats say the budget invests in VA offices and programs that haven't gotten proper attention and resources in recent years. The Biden administration is asking for a 92 percent increase to VA's suicide prevention program, a 27 percent increase for major and minor construction at VA, and funding for a 5 percent increase in staffing at the department. Mark DeCano is the chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee. The administration included $18 billion for new VA infrastructure, a much-needed boost that I support in order to ensure VA has a modern and efficient healthcare system that works for all veterans. However, the budget must include adequate resources to oversee and successfully manage major construction projects. We cannot repeat the past mistakes that led to delays and cost overruns. We must also continue to invest in VA's human capital to improve services for veterans. For example, the department, especially the Veterans Health Administration, continues to carry uh, too many unfilled positions, sometimes as many as 50,000 vacancies. VA can build new facilities, but if VA does not have the workforce to staff them, then it cannot deliver on its promises to veterans. But Republicans say the 2022 proposal is yet another record budget request after several years of record requests. Mike Bost is the ranking member of the House VA Committee. We have never asked the VA to do more with less. VA's biggest budget increases have come in the last two years. The CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan added tens of billions of dollars to the largest regular appropriation VA has ever received. And the time has come to ask when VA will be adequately funded. Congress must always prioritize veterans. Let me say that again. Congress must always prioritize veterans. But there is a natural limit to how big any budget can be. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough says the increase is partly due to pent-up demand for health care services during the pandemic. We've now seen in March, April, and May significant surge in demand for service is in direct care, that is that is to say in VA provided care, and in community care. So much so that we're watching very closely what that means for the overall budget number. So while I generally don't answer hypotheticals, I can also tell you that this one is not hypothetical. We're in the midst of a bow wave of care. We're seeing demand for that care in both channels. The Biden administration is recommending $2.7 billion for VA's electronic health record modernization program. That's on top of nearly $5 billion for VA's overall IT budget. The department says it needs the extra funds to deploy Cerner's commercial electronic record at more sites across the country, plus physical infrastructure upgrades needed to support the new system at VA hospitals. 
VA deployed the new EHR to one site last fall. That's the VA Medical Center in Spokane, Washington. The EHR rollout is on pause right now, though, as VA reviews that program. The department launched a strategic review back in March after hearing concerns from employees in Spokane, and that review is wrapping up now. Here's McDonough. We are looking at some structural questions, including how we're structured to oversee this. We are not revisiting the relationship with DOD on this. We do have to have much more candor with one another and then with ourselves, frankly, about what precisely we need, what we require from the Cerner system. We are not changing out from the Cerner system. Let me reiterate that. I said that the last time I was before this committee. I reiterate that now. But frankly, how we train and how we rack up requirements, how we govern and how we manage this process needs some work. Those are internal issues. VA was supposed to deploy the EHR to a second site in Columbus, Ohio, but McDonough says the timing of that deployment is still an open question. VA's still relatively new Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection could also see more funding and more employees. OEWP issued 99 recommendations for disciplinary action last year, but VA management officials only implemented about half of them. That track record has improved, but it's still concerning to some House members. Republican Congressman Tracy Mann. This is a $3.8 million increase to add 27 positions. However, in the past, the AOWP's director has testified on our subcommittee that roughly half of their disciplinary recommendations had been rejected. And so I'm just trying to figure out why increase this program by this amount of money and um, add 27 more when what we're currently doing doesn't seem to be working as effectively as it should be. And here's McDonough. I hear from that office, which has not yet been fully staffed since you all enacted it several months, several years ago, that it needs more people. I take their word for that. But we also have a governance and management issue, which is we have to figure out why there's such a disconnect, and this is on me, between the investigators in OAWP and the responsible management officials. And why is it that either the recommendations aren't what the management official thinks that needs to happen, or the management officials are ignoring the recommendations? We just have to increase that oversight. And that's something that's on me and my general counsel. We're actively working this. This is one of the issues we'll address as soon as Marianne Donahue is in the job, which is, I hope is later this week if she gets through the Senate. And I think your question is highly logical. It's something that is, it's an aggravation to me because this is obviously required in this department and we have to get down to it. And I hope that the next time I appear before you, you don't have to ask about it because we've addressed it. The 2022 budget would also inject more funding into VA's diversity and inclusion program. VA recently consolidated its diversity and inclusion office with its Office of Resolution Management. The 2022 budget would add almost $13 million and an additional 74 employees to that new consolidated office. Meantime, several House members are calling on McDonough to restore official time to all VA employees, including Title 38 medical professionals. The last administration eliminated it. The American Federation of Government Employees is anxious for VA to restore official time to medical professionals, even after McDonough did so for much of the workforce of the rest of the department. Here's McDonough. It's under active consideration, and we're talking about this, let's say, robustly. 
And so I hope to have some news for you soon. I think this is obviously a critically important issue. We also are looking at a raft of litigation that goes back to uh, the period of, say, the last four and a half for five years. And so I'm really hoping that we can resolve these all these issues so we can get back to restoring labor manager relations. Nicole Ligrisco, Federal News Network. Check out Nicole's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is starting to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness Uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. (laughs) Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, 
uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative, that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, What comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and and the the wonderful experiences, 
but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.